I'm right and you're wrong. Once you start labeling people, categorizing of humans and ideas, you have desensitized yourself to the humanity of that other human being, to who they really are. And in the marketplace of ideas, these things are complicated, man. We all need to engage with a variety of viewpoints. A genuine multicultural connection with another. I mean, sometimes you don't need to agree or disagree. You just need to sit with it and digest. Welcome back, everybody who's joining us on Instagram Live and who's listening later on in the podcast release of this episode. Welcome to Ideas Digest, the podcast practice that breaks down the ideas that divide us to find the humanity that connects us. My name's Conrad. Now, if you're a new listener to the show, first of all, welcome. And I'll be honest, this show is not for everybody. Everyone is welcome, don't get me wrong. But I don't think it is for everybody. Uh, It isn't comfortable trying to understand someone that you might disagree with. But I, I think, and this is just my opinion, I don't know how much it's worth, but I think if you stick with it, I think you'll like it. I just did an interview with a pro-Trumper yesterday, you know, finding out how different people see the world. And I, haven't re- I don't think I'll, I'll have released this episode yet, uh, so it'll probably come out after this. So stay tuned. But the, in this episode with new friend of the show who was a pro-Trumper, and boy, boy, was there some tribalism and divisions on the live uh, and some light verbal abuse. It was thick in the air of the audience uh, on the Instagram live. So safe to say this show wasn't for everybody. People will find the tribalism and that's okay. You know, it's not for everybody. That's okay. So if, if you want to take this podcast from a passive listen into the practice, I'm trying to move this into like something practical and get the most out of it. You know, uh, if you want to take that uh, magic Mario mushroom to level up. Now, if you're, if you're a bit Nintendo illiterate, you might be thinking I'm referencing drugs, but don't worry. It's, it's just a level up, you know, 90s kids will get it. But I'm sure most of you know what I mean. So you can do three things. Number one, you're already doing it. Listen to an episode, especially the ones that trigger you. If you, you come across, across a clickbait and you go, oh, pro-Trumper, are you kidding me? I'm triggered. Click it. Listen to it. See, see what it sounds like. And then as you're listening or when you're finished, ask. Ask a question. Jump on Instagram. One of the posts I'll do to promo the episode, ask a question you wish I had asked. So in this episode, I'm chatting to a new friend of the show, Ryan, ask a question that I might've missed. What did I miss? I'm, it's just me here now, uh, which sucks. Um, and I'm going to miss a lot of different questions. Okay. So send in some questions you wish I'd ask, and I'll probably get better at asking questions. And number three, respond. When you're finished, jump on into my DMS, into Instagram and share a short response, little Twitter response. What did it make you think of? what it made you see differently, did it make you question anything, what you found helpful or unhelpful. And if you're one of the trolls from the Trump conversation, maybe shoot through some like light verbal abuse, you know, you forgot to put through during the live. That's that's fine. Completely up to you. Doesn't phase me. So with all that preamble out of the way, let's get into it. Now, we like to begin with clickbait on the show because I think it's the beginning of every conversation rather than the end. We should start with the clickbait and keep going and not end with it. So The clickbait for this episode today is life after God. Now, many of you will be like, well, so what? But maybe some religious people of you will be like, hang on, what? Triggered. And that's okay. And I might revise the clickbait 
uh, in this conversation as as I go on. I might find something more outrageous and more out of context to really just annoy my guest a little bit, being like, I didn't say that, you know, uh, that's what clickbait's for. Um, but I think it's time to introduce uh, the new friend of the show, Ryan Bell. Thanks for joining me. Pleasure to be here. It's, it's great to have you here. Now, just quickly, um, and I know you've probably got this question a lot, how often do people confuse you with Rob Bell? <laughs> that Yeah, that used to happen a lot. Um, <laughs> I actually interviewed Rob Bell um, back when I was going through Year Without God, and we talked a little bit about that. But yeah, that, that happens from time to time. Not as much anymore. Okay, okay, good. Well, I'm glad to just th- provide some throwback memories for, <laughs> for you there. My, actually, um, the funny thing is my brother's name is Rob, so... Um, oh, but not so that it's a Rob. question I should have asked him. <laughs> wow. I okay. That's, that's cool. Um, so it's, it's nice to meet you and I've done, I've gone and done, uh, what every honest person does when they meet someone new. So I'll be honest. I've just made some judgments and assumptions about you as a person. We've just met. Now I'm just thinking things about you making assumptions and normally we just run off to our own little world and go, I spoke to this guy named Ryan. He's this, 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 and this. I'm not going to do that. I want to play a little game. We play with our guests. And I want to put to you, Ryan, these assumptions that I've had. And maybe, you know, maybe I did some light Googling to come up with some more assumptions that people might have about you. And you, we're being gracious enough in our dualistic way of looking at things to give you a right of reply. Granted, it's only a yes or no. Okay. okay. So I'll throw, just hurl these unfounded accusations. You just get to say yes or no. Whichever kind of box kind of fits, they're two tiny boxes. I'm going to squeeze you into one, whether you like it or not. All right. All right. All right. All right. Okay. But it's just the beginning. Don't worry. Time for nuance later. So Ryan, uh, I've been doing some Googling and and, and seeing some opinions about things. Uh, You are now, what, an, an atheist? Yes or no? Yes. Okay, yes. assumption, good, on track. So a Christian might throw this assumption. You used to be a Christian, yes? Yes. And you weren't, you mustn't have been grounded in the word. That's why you became an atheist. Uh, no. Oh, okay, no. Sorry, sorry, everybody, no. Okay, so you're one of these, like, truth is relative. You just determine truth subjectively. There's no objective truth for you. No, I, I think there's objective truth. Okay. All right. All right. No on that one. Off to a great start. Uh, you you just like kind of appeal to emotions and your personal beliefs in uh, and letting public opinion shape your personal beliefs in it. Use your feelings for that. No. No. All right. All right. We're, we're doing well. Okay. You're a victim of creeping secularization of the modern world. You're a victim of it. I don't know if I'm a victim. <laughs> You're a willing participant in? Yes. 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 Okay. okay. A willing participant. Okay. All right. We'll take that one. Uh, you're a, you're now a, so we're just like throwing some labels out there to see what fits. You're a confused humanist now. You don't know what you believe. No. Okay, no. Okay. I mean, partly okay. true. Yeah, partly true. Like, I, I'm confused. Nah, too much nuance. I'm going to go okay, with no. Okay, sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> uh, no, two boxes. Like, you just, 
he's, cry, he's climbing out, shoving you back in. Okay. <laughs> you you left religion uh, because you were sick of the rules. You wanted to do whatever you want. You didn't want to be constri- constrained by like sins and stuff. No. No. Okay. Well, you surely right now, you are an angry evangelical atheist like Richard Dawkins. Surely that's that's who you are. No way. No, absolutely yeah. not. Well, he's, he's, he's graciously putting up with these assumptions I'm throwing at him. He doesn't seem very angry. So I think, I think we've got evidence to the contrary of, on that one. Um, and last one, you've probably heard this one a lot. Atheism is your new religion. You're, you're still religious. You're just an atheist religious person. Oh, that begs for nuance, but I'm going to go with no. Okay. All right. Great place to end. So we've mo- see, if I ran away with all my assumptions, I'd have really gotten a lot of them wrong. So there's some hard no's on most of those. So it's time for nuance. So Ryan, over to you. I've kind of hogged the airways. Uh, just introduce yourself. However, I don't know, I guess you introduce yourself um, and give us a bit about like your background and, you know, religious upbringing, education, whatever you think fits you. Sure. Yeah, sure. Thank you for, uh, thank you for having me. First of all, um, yeah. So my name's Ryan. I, I live in Southern California uh, in the LA uh, area where I've lived for the past 15 years. I was um, born in a Christian home. I, By the time I was about seven years old, my folks had become Seventh-day Adventist. And I uh, have, was a Christian my entire life. They were uh, United Methodists before that. And um, I chose, after some back and forth in college, to become a, uh, a pastor. And so I spent quite a bit of time um, as, a, as clergy in the, in the Christian church for about 20 years. I served uh, three different uh, groupings of, uh, of churches within the, the Seventh-day Adventist Church over 20 years. And... Um, Let's see. What else can I say? I have I have two daughters, two teenage daughters. Um, I currently work at a nonprofit called the Secular Student Alliance, which supports secular students on high school and college and university campuses in the U.S. and Canada. And um, I have a podcast called Life After God, where That's I true. talk with. I've listened folks. to that. Have you? Yeah. Yes. Where I talk to folks about their um, religious transition. Uh, Sometimes it's from a religion to atheism or agnosticism. Sometimes it's from a form of religion to a different form of religion. Um, But there's usually some um, religious transition involved. And I also talk with authors and academics about uh, changing demographics and other issues related to uh, the modern practice of religion. Hmm. Wow, that's a pretty good synopsis. I feel like you've you've done this before. So you your educational background then, like you're in university and you did theology or did something else before? Yeah, so um, I went to a very fundamentalist Bible college in the foothills of southern of Central California, um, and I got a degree there, a bachelor's degree in pastoral ministry. And then got an MDiv, a Master of Divinity, um, from Andrews University, which is the Seventh-day Adventist uh, Seminary in Berrien Springs, Michigan. I saw you had my my comprade uh, Matthew Gamble on a few a few uh, weeks ago. I did. And then, yes. 
I did my uh, my doctorate at uh, Fuller Theological Seminary here in Pasadena, where I currently live. Wow, you got a lot of degrees in something you're not quite doing anymore. <laughs> yes, that is that is true. That's an <laughs> unfortunate truth. Yes. So, so I guess apart from that, like, are there any other? like groups that you would think you identify with, whether that's like hobbies, political groups, you know, to try and just work out who you are as, sure. a, as a person outside of this religious bubble. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I loosely identify with the secular humanist community in the United States and the UK um, to a lesser degree, I guess, in Australia. But the, the movement on, sort of in traditionally Western societies is around, around the same kind of concept. Um, I'm a certified humanist chaplain and uh, officiant, which means I'm licensed in the United States to do weddings uh, as a, a humanist minister. And uh, I'm a humanist chaplain at the University of Southern California. Uh, fight on. Humanist uh, chaplain. Give us a bit of a rundown on like a humanist chaplain. I, I, I presumably sure. it's a similar role, just minus the God bit. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's the similar role. Um, it's, you know, in my context at USC, it's working with students and, you know, students who are concerned about issues of uh, ethics and morality and uh, worldview, uh, kind of how to be a good person, uh, what the issue, you know, discussion around the issues of the day. Also really concerned about just generally human flourishing. Um mm -hmm. So, so that's, I have, there's a student group there called the Secular Student Fellowship. Um, and they do essentially the same thing the religious groups do. They meet for discussions. They have speakers come in. They do educational um, events. They meet biweekly for a meal on a Sunday night uh, just to kind of fellowship and invite new people. Um, so it's, mm. it's all the kinds of things you would imagine from a, um, you know, a Christian college group minus the proselytization and the and the, you know, the God beliefs. So that the sermons, they don't open a Bible. And I guess, would it be called a sermon? They just kind of like give an inspirational talk kind of thing? It's just a discussion. Sometimes someone will give a talk. Um, other yeah. times, um, you know, it'll just be a discussion. Someone will pose a question. One of the leaders will pose a question. And there's no um, one coming up being like, you misinterpreted that fact completely. You've, you've I mean, misread maybe. it. Yeah, okay. maybe like like if you if you make a claim that's um you know outside of someone else's understanding of that claim, they might challenge you uh, oh, to say, well, that's, that's not what the science says. Actually, the science is you know this direction or that direction or the yeah um, you know. So it's not as though you know it's not as though scientific claims are without um, debate, right? I mean, that's the point of science is to make a, a hypothesis and try to demonstrate it with evidence. And then come back, you know, with other, um, you know, evidence. Uh, quickly, before I forget, I also wanted to mention that that you asked about politics, and this is really important to me. Um, yeah, so I identify generally as a democratic socialist, and Bernie, um, Bernie bro. Yeah, I'm a Bernie bro. Yeah, <laughs> I got to get you uh, on to talk about that after the Trump guy. That'll be that'll be a good conversation. I'm a little to the left of Bernie, probably. Oh, um, what does that look and, like? Ast Australian and, uh, then, <laughs> right? Yeah, I I volunteer with my local tenants union, so I'm very involved in housing justice and um, the fight for you know 
tenant uh, housing justice and and tenants rights, um, especially right now okay. during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, a lot of people facing eviction. So trying to save people. Yes. I should have I should have thrown in there like this West Coast like liberal elite kind of guy it's uh, like bernie socialist communist kind of that their yeah. their assumptions for another day not not today something i could have said yes to yeah uh, yeah <laughs> um so i i kind of want to like circle back before we we go into it um to as we like explore this idea of like what you're doing as like a humanist chaplain it, how would you characterize like the groundings of that of that world view in that you know, in, in a religious setting, if, if you say something outside the claims of, let's say, like a literalist interpretation of the Bible, at least within a lot of Protestantism, they'll come at you and be like, no, no, that's not what it kind of says. What do you find is the grounding worldview that people will come up and kind of push against? So there'll be things being like, yeah, I can understand that perspective. But is there any things that people can say where they go, no, no, that's not in the science? And it, what, what do you think it comes from, like a materialism or, or how do you characterize it? Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, it would be nice if there were tidy tidy categories like that. Yeah. Um, but I do think, roughly speaking, I would say uh, a general understanding of science and materialism. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, when it comes to a claim like the idea that human beings are are um, contributing to global warming that will, you know, very quickly result if it ha- if it hasn't already in severe um, climate events that, you know, negatively impact large groups of people, um, then if someone comes along and says, well, that's not really happening, I think a lot of in our community would say, that's Mm -hmm. just not what the science says, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, on COVID-19, for example, um, you know, people that are trying to deny that there's a real pandemic happening or that it's some kind of hoax, you know, that wouldn't fly. Um, There's still a lot of ambiguity about what uh, the coronavirus, this this particular novel coronavirus is and how it works. People are still learning. And I think this is the humility that science brings, um, that we don't know the final answer and that we're always open to new interpretations. But I think, yeah, if, if someone was going to push back, on what basis would they push back? I would say it would be um, science and also history. Um, you know, I, You know, history is a little bit more ambiguous, but I think people would would say, like in the sense of creationism, for example, um, that's a scientific issue, but I think it's also a historical issue to say, we've thoroughly debated that issue. Uh, Unless you have, it's almost like in a court of law, if you don't have new evidence to bring, we're not going to reopen this case. Um, The case is closed. Unless, of course, you bring something new to the the case, and then we'll, of course, we'll reopen it and examine it. How how do you find how inclusive that community is like if a religious person did come to the secular humanist gatherings uh, and 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 they said like oh i believe there's a god i think there's there's a purpose in things do you like would in your experience do you think they'd be kind of shut down like come on mate like the science doesn't say that or you think they'd go oh like tell me about how it helps you or something like that I don't know if they'd say, tell me how it helps you. I, I think there would, among a, among a large group of people, be a, a curiosity about why like an otherwise seemingly intelligent person would hold those beliefs. Um, so mm. like a genuine, it might sound a little condescending at times to the Christian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a genuinely intelligent person, how can you believe something <laughs> implicitly right. so unintelligent? Yeah. 
Well, not even, yeah, not even so unintelligent, but just uh, with, with, without evidence, you know? And, mm-hmm. but on the other hand, I think the, the closer you go for like from away from atheism, exactly like that being the person's primary way of identifying to people who primarily would identify as humanist, I think you'll run into more and more people who were formerly religious yeah. and do understand the importance of religion, how, how religion operates totally apart from truth claims, how re- religion operates in people's lives and why it has value. And I think people would be sensitive to that. What do you think the difference is when you say uh, atheist v humanist? Yeah, I mean, atheism is, and this is important to, I think, get across to your listeners. I mean, atheism is the answer, a simple answer to one simple question, which is, is there a God? Mm-hmm. And it's a binary choice. So atheism is a rather narrow question around, around the existence of God. So if, if you were, if someone t- were to ask you right now, do you, do you believe in God? Like you were forcing me into boxes a minute ago. So yeah. everyone is forced into this yeah. box. Um, yes or no. If you're inclined to say yes, that there is a God, even if you wouldn't necessarily ascribe to the God that your friends might believe in, then you would, you would broadly speaking, be considered a theist. If, if your yeah. hunch is or your sense is or your feeling based on the evidence that you have available to you that there are no gods, then you would be an atheist. That doesn't necessarily mean that you know for sure that there are no gods. It just mm. means that at this moment in time, when you're asking me that question, my answer is no. I don't, I don't mm. think there's a, I don't think there are any gods. And so you're I saying always, that that question doesn't give too much further insight than other than that one narrow, do you think there is a God? That's right. Yeah. So right. you have people like Richard Spencer here in the U S who's a neo-Nazi. He claims to be an atheist and you have other people throughout history who are humanitarians, who are mm-hmm. socialists, communists, you know, Karl <clears throat> Marx famously, atheists completely on the other side of the spectrum. So, you know, what I often say is that atheism doesn't predict for anything. Um, It's a completely Hmm, uh, separate question. So humanism starts to get at the question of, you know, what is your philosophy of the world that we inhabit and people and people's place in that world? Uh So if you say I'm a humanist, you're saying there's more that you can pin to that you're you like, what are the central values then of, of a humanist? I mean, I think humanists would say, I mean, the central values of, of humanism would be that, um, that human beings are responsible, that, um, we are accountable for our lives, the way we live them, the way we live in relationship to other people and the planet and animals and so forth. And that problems that we face, are faced by by us alone. That there's, uh, as I sometimes say, no one coming to save us. Um, that we are um, we are the ones we're waiting for. And uh-huh. so, humanism to me is about learning to live, especially if you were formerly Christian, learning <laughs> to live without promises. There are no guarantees, and mm. it's a challenge in a way. Like, can you live an ethical life without these guarantees, without right. promises of an afterlife and so forth? Could you be? a Christian humanist? I think so. Yeah. Some will balk at that um, and say, no, humanism really requires you to see humans uh, without uh, sort of a supernatural backup plan. Um, But I think a lot of people that identify as Christian humanists really do see um, God as not an intervener in human affairs. And so they they share that same 
uncertainty about well is god coming back or was he talking was jesus talking about the kingdom of heaven here and now and not not a later thing so they can embody that same like well we got to do this thing as humans right yeah i think it's the locus of the locus of 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 change and of um engagement is at the human level and i think sometimes humanism has gotten um out over its feet if you, you may say like a little bit of a big head that that humans are the end all be all, um, uh, and this is anthropocentrism like, or something. Yeah, or just kind of like a little too confident. Um, so, so I think it's important to say that that my form of humanism, and I think many people that I uh, talk to and associate with, it, it it's not as though we believe that humans absolutely will solve these problems. I mean, I think all bets are off. Like. There are no promises. <laughs> yeah. There's no sense that humans are are going to figure this out. We could seal our fate here in the next couple decades, um, yeah. and and that would be the end of us. But I think it's what it's saying is that if there are solutions, and if we are to come to any um, sort of mutually beneficial solutions for the human species and for all species, that it lies mm-hmm. with humans to do that. It's not like we're waiting for an afterlife or a new Earth to come in and. And fix mm-hmm. things, or as N.T. Wright would say, to you know, God's not going to come and put things to rights. If we're going to put things to rights, it's up to us. Right. Interesting. Okay. Well, then I I, I like all those definitions and clarifications. I've got a good picture of kind of your your headspace at the moment. So walk me through, which you've probably done a lot over the years. Um, walk me through your transition from being a highly uh, what is it like? You got a lot of like. like degrees of badges of honor within theology and I like being a pastor and then coming to this point where you question it and, and essentially not believe anything in that world that you used to believe. And I wonder if, if, if I can, as, as you kind of unpack it, I'm very interested in exploring the, the, like the gateway drug idea, the, the concept the maybe the theological doctrine, the thing that, Maybe as you pulled that piece of string, what was that piece of string you first pulled that unraveled the rest for you as you explore this journey? Yeah, those are really um, good questions sort of embedded within each other. Um, if I get too far afield, you know, bring me back. But yeah, um, I feel like um, I was never, as a pastor, I was never too worried about the question of God's existence. So it's not something I spent a lot of time thinking about. I was much more uh, focused on sort of the the ethics of of Christian, like the, what what you know, as a Christian, how are we to live? Like what sh- how should we live our lives? What should we be up to? Um, so I think for me, it was the. Um, the inspiration of scripture was probably the, the string um, mm-hmm. that eventually unraveled the sweater. And I think the subject matter was um, primarily around LGBTQ uh, individuals right. and their place in the church. So my denomination did not welcome, <clears throat> or if they did begin to welcome, it was sort of begrudging and certainly wasn't. Uh, or with invi- conditions or something. Yeah. And not invited into leadership in the congregation. So they were, you know, we would suffer their existence, but we weren't going to um, welcome them into ministry, um, either lay ministry or professional clergy. Um, And so, you know, I, 
I really had a problem with that. You know, I, I really had a, an, a struggle between my conv- commitment to the Bible as sort of this uh, interpretive tool to help me understand my place in the world and my congregation's role in the world. And this claim that this large group of people, many of whom were members of my church, were unacceptable to God the way they are. And um, that eventually came to me reading lots of books, um, trying to make sense of this. And I eventually came to the place where I felt as though um, it was I was doing all this like mental and theological gymnastics to come to the place where I said, you know, gay and lesbian and queer folks, transgender folks are acceptable to God. Um, Mm. and it was as though I was, I was trying to make like a 500 foot journey, but I went on this like 500 mile path to travel 500 feet, you know, because I had to go through all of these hoops and all of these explanations. So I finally came to the place where I was, I said, you know, I think, I think the apostle Paul was just wrong about this. Like, I think that he was mistaken, understandably so, given his social and political context, that he was just mistaken about women and about uh, queer people. And, yeah. and of course, in an evangelical context, it's not okay to say that Paul was mistaken. Um, right. So you can't say that he was a person part of a context that, of course, he like, like, I mean, the whole thing that's like with the statues in the States and probably Australia now as well. It's like, of course, that guy was a slave owner. Everyone right. owned slaves. 200 right. years ago, whatever. And, and so it's like kind of, you know, as part of the context, it doesn't make it right. It's just kind of the, the context with, within which they lived, I suppose. Right. And I think it, it's, you know, and I, I came from a tradition that said, you know, the context of the scripture was important, but that the divine inspiration of the Bible prevented that context from ever affecting negatively the final product of the scripture. So Paul was a product of his context, no doubt. Uh, Everybody would concede that. But the final product of the Bible as we read it today, interpreted as it's been and translated as it's been, um, is reliable. To say that that final product that came out in in the text is not reliable, that's another thing altogether. And you found that you had to say that that text wasn't reliable in order to look at your LGBTQ plus friends and say, you're okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and I understand right. the liberal theological interpretation of those texts, um, but it, it came to the point to me where if, if you needed 350 pages to explain, you know, 25 words of scripture that, you know, uh, maybe you're going to too much effort, you know, maybe it's so, just okay. not... So you were kind of, so I guess, um, you know, I think Rob Bell, that's, this is what I feel like set him a, uh, cast away from the Adventist church. You know, he wrote the book about hell potentially not being a thing. He questioned that and he lost a lot of the evangelical world. Then he came out and said, well, I don't think Paul was actually talking about homosexuals. And that's what you're referring to as the liberal reading of that. So a, a liberal or progressive Christian might say, yeah, Paul wasn't actually referring to monogamous homosexual relationships today. Um, he was actually referring to debaucherous, Greco, uh, ritualized, whatever uh, activity there. Um, but you're saying that 
if you have to go through all of that to then say that the Bible is still useful, I, it sounds like then you ask the question, well, is it useful? It's not like you're, you're questioning that interpretation more. You're saying, like, wh- why do I have to... Ke- That's right. What's it like? And for you, it sounds like you're saying, what's the point of the Bible then? How does it help if I have to do this to make it helpful? Is yeah. that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that's good. I think that's right. And I think the Bible is a tremendously interesting book. Um, but my, you know, I would say it's a thoroughly human book and right. a reflection of a group of people over many millennia trying to make sense of their place in the world and their belief in a divine being who was guiding their steps. Um, and their disappointment, frankly, with that divine being at times and and their failure and, and all the rest. So I think when you take away the necessity of it to be divinely inspired, you open up different possibilities for, for what it, it can and, and what it, you know, what it can be. Um, and I think that there are gr- Christian groups even that can um, engage the Bible on those terms, that mm-hmm. it's not divinely inspired, um, that there is a God perhaps, and that the Bible is entirely human or that inspiration includes error. You know, the inspiration includes um, like if God were really trying to pour God's self through human beings onto the printed page, don't you think that there'd be some mistakes along the way? (laughs) I mean, that seems pretty reasonable to me. So I think one can even be a Christian, broadly speaking, or a theist, broadly speaking, and um, embrace uh, the Bible as something that's not divinely inspired in the way that we usually mean that. Mm-hmm. And and that doesn't sound like that's you in that camp. Uh, you're talking about, I, I presume it sounds like you've explored these progressive interpretations of the Bible that make room for uh, the, the people or groups that have typically been excluded by a particular reading of the Bible. But why is it that you, kind of, I, I presume, explored that and then kind of moved from it? It seemed extraneous. Um, it, it seemed um, I, I, one of the ways that I've described it is that, you know, when I first, I mean, any child is born thinking that their family is the whole world, their living room in their backyard or their right. playground, you know, it's like the whole world. And if you go back and you visit your childhood home, you you realize that your backyard is a fraction the size of, of, of the way you remember it. Um, because your you, you know your mind just conceptualized this massive uh, space, and and as you grow older, your your worldview expands quite you know, almost literally geographically. You begin to realize that it's not just the people of your town, it's not just the people of your province or your state, it's not the, just the people of Australia. It's there's a whole world out there of people that live in, in different ways. And I found theologically a similar thing happened for me where I thought. Okay, so God's people are these people. And then, you know, you read the New Testament and God says, uh, you know, God's people include more than just the Jews. It's also the Gentiles. And then, you know, you come into the modern world and and God is including all sorts of outcasts in, in God's family. And pretty soon the box that contains God's people, in my, in my experience, expanded to include the whole world. I suppose make you a, make one a universalist, in which case I didn't really see the point of having a box at all. Um, it was just everyone, mm-hmm. and 
and that, that doesn't really answer the question of God so much. Um, that's a separate, a separate question, but yeah, it, it sort of helped me. I didn't need the in-group, out-group dynamics of the church anymore to help me identify who the good ones were, you know, like who the acceptable uh-huh. ones were. It sounds like this religious uh, upbringing and framework that you had, and even listening to your the work you're doing now in humanism and, and the things you're doing, it almost sounds like uh, something that uh, someone we had on the show earlier, Peter Rollins, you're probably familiar with some of his Oh, yeah, work. I know Peter well. Yeah, he's a good friend. Uh, yeah, he, yeah we, we had him on the show. And, and he, he talks about like the fidelity of betrayal. And it sounds like I'm hearing a lot of these very central Christian message of messages within everything you're saying, which is like, include the outcast, include the other, look after the poor, look after the homeless, um, like expand the world to include everybody. That would be a reading that like, you know, is a non-controversial, like Christians would be like, yeah. And, and, and that God is bigger than these things and all of that stuff. And it sounds as if in order to stay true to that message that you, I guess, grew up with and preached, you've ended up leaving the very framework that maybe shaped that. What do you think? Yeah, I would say, like, I often tell people that I I learned my social justice sort of ethic from Jesus, you know, no question about it. That's Mm -hmm. how I, that's where I learned my values. I think the church in particular became an extraneous overlay. Um, And the evidence of that for me was that I removed that overlay and everything was fine for me. Like, I didn't, Uh I didn't, I didn't need, I mean, what is the purpose of the church outside of community? Like, let's take that off the table for a moment because people can experience community uh, in, in all sorts of different ways that we have humanist communities, atheist communities. Um, people need community regardless of their religious worldview. So beyond that, as, as Dallas Willard famously said years ago, that Christianity often operates as a, a sin management system. So, so Christianity becomes this thing that helps us process our sin. Um, so if you don't need that, like if you're seen as defined as like bad moral doings or something, right. And if you say like, um, we are all to use that language, we're all sinners and we don't need saving in, in as much as there's no sort of atonement that any one of us can, um, provide for any one other or group of others. Um, it's, we're, we're all in this together. We're all fra- flawed human beings. And the, the religious construct of creating in-groups and out-groups based on belief systems becomes a, a, an obstacle to the goal of being, uh, of pursuing, you know, human flourishing and justice and mm-hmm. a, a world that operates um, by love. And, mm-hmm. And it just, you know, it's funny as I reflected back on it after spending a couple of years outside of a religious framework and without a theistic worldview, my life was, my my understanding of the world and my approach to the world was simpler. It was less uh, burdened with lots of extra layers, like interpretive frameworks. Um, It's almost as if you can imagine your computer operating system, you like trying to run one operating system that runs another one that runs a third one in order to actually run the software and it slows your computer down. It takes up all kinds of memory. Mm. It's, it's, it's a clumsy system. 
And to me, leaving Christianity was leaving an operating system that wasn't actually providing me anything, and hmm. but that but that stood in the way of really the goal that I had. So walk me through the, I guess the the details and the personal experience of what you're describing from a bird's eye view, saying this this operating system that that slowed you down and made life a little bit more difficult. On that personal level, um, people, if they followed your journey, might be familiar with, you know, you were, you were a pastor and then you did a year without God and then you came out and moved on with life after God. Uh, yeah. Walk me th- through like the, what does this look like on on a experiential, like emotional level as you unpack that. So you, you described your first encounter, like this church doesn't include this group of like vulnerable LGBT plus people. And I'm, I, I, I feel like I have to, and this is stopping me. What else as you're working through this, the way you went, how did you discover that this is slowing me down as an operating system to move from it? And how did, what did you experience when you did that? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, one of the, I mean, it wasn't, I don't want to leave the impression that it was simple. Um, uh-huh. And it was profoundly personal and and intimate in many ways as well. I mean, as an evangelical, um, one of the things that, that I think I found most um, winsome and beautiful about my faith was the idea of um, a personal relationship with, with Jesus. And even though I never really completely understood what that meant, even as a pastor with a, a doctorate, um, right on an intu- on an intuitive level, I felt it. You know, I I oh. felt, and I, I was actually just on a podcast with a a pastor, a former colleague of mine in the Adventist Church yesterday, and we were talking about this. That, um, I mean, we all. He asked me about the God shaped hole in our hearts. You know, the alleged God shaped hole. Right. And, and I, you know, my response was this, to say that we all have a hole in our hearts. We all have probably many holes in our hearts, so to speak, that, mm-hmm. um, you know, the need to love and be loved, um, the, the need to be understood, to have a meaningful uh, relationship with the world and a contribution to it, uh, to be able to make sense of the events of life in some, in some kind of framework are all sort of universal human needs. And I think what Christianity provides in an evangelical register is that sense of being absolutely unconditionally loved. Um, and that's a that's a really cool thing. I mean, if that were true, if that were actually a real thing, um, that that's pretty valuable. Uh, because and that's what you're saying. The- you felt you you when you yeah. when you were in that world. You felt. Well, what was that feeling then? If you were to describe that, like to feel that unconditional love, is it like a a, a safety thing or that like yeah, everything's going to be okay? Is is that what you're describing? Yeah, yeah you know the phrase. Uh, yeah, safety is uh, uh, a word that comes to mind. The expression that you sometimes hear um, that everything will be okay in the end. If it's mm. not okay, it's not the end. And, and this assurance that, um, you know, the arc of the, the moral arc of the universe will bend towards justice. These are sort of eschatological promises of Christianity that I found Mm -hmm. very encouraging, motivating. Um, There was always a kind of backstop. Um, You know, nothing, nothing truly bad could happen, Mm -hmm. you know, if you were in the kingdom of God. 
And, um, and so I think the loss of that for me, um, was hard. Um, I think on an experiential level, I went from being, um, you know, a somewhat influential pastor in the city of Los Angeles, participating in a variety of social and community, uh, programs (laughs) and, um, committees and various things to being essentially a nobody, uh, in the community. I didn't have a title anymore. I didn't have uh, a caller, so to speak, to, uh, you know, open the door, open doors for me. I lost a lot of friends. Um, and, you know, I, I, I've often felt um, that the, the song that came out the year I was doing Year Without God um, by Great Big World, Say Something, uh, really encapsulated for me the emotional experience of losing my, my faith, which was... Mm-hmm. You know, I really believed that God, God was there for me and that nothing truly bad would happen. And that even if answers to prayer didn't arrive in the way that I expected they should, um, that, that God had a plan and that God had a way that I wasn't familiar with and that I just needed to trust him. And, um, you know, it's, it's like any other kind of breakup. You come to the unfortunate realization that this relationship isn't what you thought it was and that you're healthier and safer and better off. Um, moving on from that relationship doesn't mean it make it easy or or un, like without pain, uh, but I think long term it was uh, the right thing to do and a way of facing the music, facing the reality of the world uh, squarely. That's um, made me a happier, healthier person. So, so you then, when you ent- when you're entering into this year without God, was that what were you hoping was would come from that? Was it was it you'd already kind of given up and and you were like testing God, or what were you hoping to get out of that? I guess experiment that you were running. Yeah, I, you know, I I entered the year thinking that um, wanting there to be a God. Um, but being sort of very dubious about that. Um, and so my... You had doubts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, doesn't everybody? Right. <laughs> but but I was clergy, which is a key mm. factor in all of this, which meant that I had to believe, and Peter Rollins talks about this, I had to believe on behalf of my congregation. That was the expectation. So I I wasn't allowed to bring my, and I did anyway, you know, we did a lot of things. We did, you know, atheism for Lent and all of that. Uh, We did it in our own way, but inspired by, by Peter Rollins. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I just, you know, because I was clergy and because I was expected to believe on behalf of my congregation to be that sort of stand in, um, I had shelved those doubts largely, you know, I just sort of, those were my private concerns. I didn't really bring them into the public discourse. And so when I, uh, left the church and I was, I was dismissed by the denomination actually, um, in early 2013, I, I no longer had that obligation to believe on behalf of the congregation. I didn't have a congregation right. anymore. It was just me. And so I had this freedom, this moment where I could, explore my doubts, take them seriously, mm-hmm. you know, hold them in my hand, turn them over um, with the hope that I would find God at the end of it. Um, but also being very aware that I may not. And, and really coming to really 
be okay with either result. So your beliefs and religion were held in place by your job and social structures that were around you. Were you dismissed from Adventism for your doubts or for your, like, unbelief? So to speak, is that the reason why? Right, okay. Yeah, in part. And, I mean, again, like, there's an escalating... um, uh, belief requirement as you go from being a theist to then choosing a particular brand of theism, say Christianity, to then choosing a particular brand of Christianity, say Adventism. Yeah, the, yeah. the belief requirement, the quotient of belief goes way up. Yeah. A, um, a particular wing of Adventism, a particular, yeah. <laughs> which, right. Yeah. You have to believe that the Adventist church is the remnant church of Bible prophecy predicted to usher in the last days. So like, like remnant be- being you're the only right group, like everybody else is misinterpreted, but you've got it. Right. That's right. right. And that God will probably save a bunch of those other people, but that we are the ones that will bring clarity this, to the situation and, and um, open that door. So, um, uh-huh. so to, to not be an Adventist anymore on those ideological grounds was pretty, pretty easy. You know, the, the bar is pretty high. Um, right. you, know, you have to believe in a six day literal creation. You have to believe yeah. that the Adventist church is the remnant church, that Ellen White is a prophet, mm-hmm. um, you know, inspired by God speaking to the church. So there are a lot of, um, requirements. And so in a sense, I was dismissed for lack of belief. I didn't believe that gay and lesbian people were out of harmony with God. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a, a belief system. I was also, um, you know, it was claimed that I didn't really wasn't emphasizing the gospel that I was, you know, mm-hmm. focusing on social justice, which is not the gospel. Um, oh, so there were a lot of problems. Social justice is not the gospel. Oh. Well, the gospel That's is, I mean, one. the gospel is uh, Jesus died for our sins. And if you right. accept him, you are saved. Right. Actually, I have heard from, from some people, um, I'm trying to get somebody who critiques progressive Christianity on yet to make contact. You know, Elisa Childers, Elisa. I don't know. Uh, no. Well, so maybe if you did, but uh, if anyone knows her, I've reached out to her, but she critiques it. And, and she said, yeah, she, she says something like interesting, uh, like kind of about what you're talking about, but I've forgotten it. I've forgotten it at the moment. So it's a, a pointless segue, but, um, <laughs> But yeah, anyway, as, as you were. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I think, um, you know, I, so yes, I was just dismissed as it were, or I left, we came to a mutual parting of the ways, a conscious uncoupling, if you will. Right, Um, right. Because the gospel is this central, like, yeah, atonement for sin. Um, and I guess you were interpreting the Jesus narrative as well. He fed the homeless. He, he's, he stood up for people. He broke down the religious establishment. He, right. And that, and that was was, the beginning. He was murdered by the Imperial, uh, occupiers, you know, like that was, and encouraged by the religious elites to do so. Like, right. Yeah, exactly. So that was my, my framework. I had become a thoroughly sort of liberal liberation theology Christian and, there was no real room within the Adventist church for that. Expression. Just a quick one. What's, what's our liberation theology? 
Um, liberation theology emerges primarily from the global South, from Latin America. Um, Gustavo Gutierrez was one of the key authors. And um, basically one of the tenets of, of liberation theology is that God has a preferential option for the poor and that salvation happens in the here and now, that the kingdom of God is uh -huh. present and that the goals of the kingdom of God is to put the world to rights in the here and now. Um, so yeah. And, and then there's a black American expression, African-American expression of liberation theology as well, but it, it emerges in marginalized communities where the Christian narrative just didn't, didn't work. You know, mm -hmm. that people didn't feel saved, <laughs> you know, they were saved, yeah. but not saved. They yeah. were saved, but still impoverished, saved, but still enslaved, saved, but still, um, you know, gunned down in the streets and free, they were but like, not free. Yeah, this is some some kind of bullshit salvation, you know, like what kind mm. of salvation is this? And right. then they looked to the Gospels, they looked to the Bible and saw that, you know, the Jews were uh, were suffering under the heel of the Romans in real time, not just in metaphorical terms. And that part of the the liberation that was envisioned by the Jewish people was an actual liberation from oppression. Right. And so I'm mapping this like I'm almost able to draw this slippery slope that you have, <laughs> they'll say you've yeah. slid down. You went from, because as I was, as I was reading like why people, and I, I am kind of just, I'm just going to go on the rabbit hole. There's no structure to these things. I just reach out to people and whoever comes on, I just chat to. Um, but as, as, as I map this, this trajectory that you've gone down of, and this, when I was doing some Googling, someone was saying, and that was my accusation at the beginning, um, that, you were not grounded in the words that say because you you kind of weren't grounded in the interpretation then you went into like this liberation theology so what was the next slippery step that you took from that like more inclusive progressive liberation theology that says jesus will transform the, the kingdom of heaven is within it's now be like do social justice do these things and that's what jesus stood for what kind of led you i guess out of that into something else or did you bolt something new on yeah, no, I think it was being, um, you know, separating from the church was a key thing. And then I think, um, you know, the next sort of gateway, that that was sort of the gateway drug to the next drug, which was probably um, Elaine de Botton, who wrote a book called Religion for Atheists and uh, a philosopher whose name I'm the, forgetting um, right now. Is that the School of Life YouTube yeah. guy? Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. I knew I'd heard that name, yeah. Good pronunciation of his name, by the way. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, Alan T. Bottom. <laughs> well, I don't even know if I'm saying it right. I'm guessing. Uh, it sounds good. Uh, sounds good. Go with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, and I think it was, it was, um, and I think the Jewish experience inspired me. I mean, I mean, one of the, when I started Year Without God, the very first person to call me was a rabbi friend of mine here in Los Angeles. And he said, we've got to have lunch. So we, we go and we're literally having like matzo ball soup one afternoon on the west side of Los Angeles. And he says, you're having a very Jewish journey. And I said, how, how so? And he said, oh, fully half of my synagogue are, are atheists. Um, he's a reformed oh. rabbi. And, you know, the, the big question after the Holocaust, uh, of course, right, for Jews was where was God uh, in the Holocaust? Mm. If God couldn't, I mean, there's, you know, there's this sort of um, anthropomorphism we do about God. Like if you have children, um, you know, you sort of let them fall and skin their knees and, and they learn and they, you know, you can't protect them from every harm. 
Mm. Um, it's part of growing up that you learn to suffer some hardship and some pain in life, but you don't let them walk out in front of traffic, right? That makes you a bad parent. <laughs> I got to learn um, somehow. Yeah, exactly. Right. This is your last <laughs> chance, buddy. It's <laughs> <is> good parenting. <laughs> right. Exactly. Literally your last chance. So there's a line between like allowing your children to suffer some pain in their growing up journey and literally allowing them to be uh, killed. And, and so if, you know, if you were to think of like, what is the most exaggerated example of human suffering, um, you'd have to land on one of the many genocides and, you know, the genocide yeah. of the Jews, you know, in the 20th century is, is uh, probably the pinnacle of, of that. So, you know, Jewish theologians, as well as Christian theologians like um, uh, Jürgen Moltmann uh, are, you know, are examples of people who took the Holocaust seriously and said, you know, what does it look like to do theology after the Holocaust? And how do we ac account for this enormous absence and silence of God? And for, for many Christians, they created a theology about God's silence. They created a theology about God's, God's absence. I mean, I think I would include, you know, Peter Rollins in that group who, who's done a lot of work to create a theology of God's silence. And if that works for you, you know, that's great. Um, you know, a lot of Jewish philosophers and theologians said, no, there's no God. Um, we can be Jews without, without a belief in God. And, um, and that's what they've done. And so Judaism in particular is, is unique in the sense that it doesn't require God belief. Whereas you can hardly mm -hmm. imagine being an atheist Christian, although there are some people who, who claim to do that. Mm -hmm. um, Man, that's interesting. If you know any rabbis... I would love to speak to them. That that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole movement um, called humanistic Judaism, oh. and um, and there's uh, yeah, they practice the Jewish religion, which is sort of the rituals, the practices, the culture, mm -hmm. um, but without the belief system. But, but Christianity is, you know, being um, so influenced by Greek philosophy as it was, is very much about ideas. It's about... And ideas oh. determine the group. Yeah, determine Rather the group than and the behavior and everything else. Yeah. The, I guess what the history determines the group or the... the or the community. Community determines. Like if you're in the community, you're in the community because that's right. where you are. Right. Yeah, you're not going to be kicked out for not. Although there are exceptions, of course. I mean, as mm -hmm. you go closer to, um, you know, Orthodox and and ultra Orthodox Hasidic Judaism, you mm -hmm. can, you know, if you don't, the beliefs are ensconced in practices, and so if you don't engage in those, uh -huh. then you're not. Then you can be expelled from the community. Ah, uh, very interesting. So, I guess as as we kind of, you know, I don't want to take too much time, but. Uh, like it's 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 mapped an interesting journey from you unraveling one worldview that's that you're saying you found just not helpful in certain ways. So I guess the question becomes: as you leave more conservative tribal group of like a very specific Adventist belief into a more like inclusive Christian idea of going, well, you know, God and the here and now social justice, it is compatible. But then even going and going, you know what, like adopting and being honest about, I guess, your answer to the question, do you think there's a God? That answer is no. And embracing that and then going into the humanist framework. What 
do you gain from that, I suppose? What what has this um, movement into, I guess, a new community, a new group? Because some people would leave and maybe just, just be agnostic and not participate in, a, in any other sort of group or, or expression. What do you gain from, from say, from... I guess identifying, like if people ask you, are you an atheist? You'd be like, yeah, I'd, I'd be an atheist. What do you gain from, I guess, that identification? And what do you gain from the humanist, I guess, expression and, and belonging there? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, for whatever reason, I have a, a desire to um, find a philosophical worldview that fits me or that I fit into. Maybe not everyone has that need. You know, maybe some people are just um, fine on their own. Although I suspect that people have these ideological worldviews, whether they realize they do or not, you know, whether it's um, American or, um, or, you know, white American or Australian or a Democrat or a Republican or a socialist or whatever they describe themselves as we, we have this sort of natural tendency to try to put some kind of frame around our beliefs and our values mm-hmm. in order to call it something, you know? And um, so I don't think I need humanism to be the person I am, mm-hmm. but people always want to know like what you are. Right. Um, right. And, and that suits me well enough. There are problems with humanism. I mean, yeah. uh, institutionally. Um, what know. does it give you that your previous community or tribe like didn't? Like, why is this more freedom. helpful for you? Yeah, it's, it's more free. I, I feel like it's, it doesn't include shame. There's not a kind of uh, fear-based um, system of, of being damned or or saved or included or excluded. It's just um, a very simple, quite humble, frankly, belief that we are um, capable and responsible for our lives, both individually and collectively, and um, that whatever world we anticipate is the world that, that we will, that we will have created ourselves. Um, So it's not, it's not something that is, uh, I, I always felt a, a deep um, sense of obligation or responsibility mm-hmm. to, to my life as a Christian. I always worried that I was failing or that I wasn't doing enough. And I, you know, mm. to be totally honest, I still worry that I'm not doing enough uh, to address whatever things are wrong with the world. Yeah. But I don't, I don't worry that I'm being, um, condemned or, or, um, or that I'll be damned. That that's interesting. The, the contrast that you're drawing between when you referred to it, when, when you had this, some personal experience of a personal relationship, it was safe, it was secure, it was a safe universe. But, but now you're pulling out that contrast of within that safety, so to speak, came with the cost of shame and not being, not being good enough, maybe not being, uh, believing the right things and holding up that um, way of doing it. Because it sounds like you've got, with the humanist worldview, a lot more responsibility. 
And it almost seems like in direct contrast to the, uh, in certain, well, in most aspects of Protestantism, it comes with the, you don't have to do anything, you are saved, loved and accepted. And some people might be hearing this and saying, well, you've stepped into more of a works-based, godless way of viewing the world because now you you are responsible, right? You have to do these things. It sounds like from that you've stepped from a safe and shameful universe to an unsafe and 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 difficult universe. What about that is is like what why did you do that? Why like yeah yeah, it's a, I see what you're saying. It's, it's a good question. Because obviously you, um, you took that step because, you know, on some level it, 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 it's better for you. So I guess the question is, yeah. what is? Yeah. And, and, you know, each of us are wired a little differently, but I, I really carried with me in, the, in the, probably the last eight to ten years of my Christian experience a great deal of cognitive dissonance where the things that I was – supposed to profess, I didn't really believe anymore. And, mm. and so there was a relief related to that, you know, not needing to believe things that seemed unbelievable to me. Um, but, but I've, I've also said, and I'll, I'll say again, that I, I came to the place in my life where truth was the thing that mattered to me. And I came to the point where I preferred a painful truth to a comforting untruth. And and without I, going too far into a rabbit hole, when you're using the word truth, you're describing what? Well, in that context, I'm describing like the uh, correspondence between my experience of the world and my beliefs about the world. Um, so that that my belief about the world was such that, you know, such a thing and that my my, my religion said I had to believe certain things about the world, which I found completely untenable. Um, so I would rather, I guess what I'm saying is that I would rather have like a painful truth would be um, one day I'm going to die and that'll be the end of me. Mm -hmm. That's a painful truth mm -hmm. that I think is hard to handle as a human being. I mean, nothing drives us more than the, the will to live forever. Like we don't want to die. And yeah. a comforting, a comforting untruth from my perspective is that don't worry after you die, you'll be resurrected and you'll live forever. And you say that's an untruth because you have no personal experience that can validate that. Yeah. It doesn't seem, maybe I'm wrong, right? Like maybe I'm completely wrong about that and we'll all wake up one day in paradise or the other place. And, um, so, uh, you know, but but I, it's not even a matter for me of like what is ultimately true and untrue. It was more for me that like, how do I live my life? Like, how do I, how do I go from moment to moment in my life? And, you know, I go from moment to moment. Like, I think I've often argued that most people are functional atheists. Like most people go from moment to moment in their life as yeah. though their life depends on their choices and the choices of the people around them. They act as if God isn't real. They get cancer. They go to the doctor as if a miracle right. can't happen. Right. And why wouldn't you? And, and also like, like, and also freak, you know, acts of nature. So, and accidents and, and, and um, unexpected, you know, chance. So like I could walk out my front door and a brick could fall off 
the upper stories of my building and hit me in the head and I would die and that would be it. You know, like probably that's not going to happen, but it could happen. Um, and, and I think just accepting that like you could be a brain in a vat, right? Like you could be, we could be in the matrix right now. Like all sorts of things are possible. We could be resurrected one day and live in paradise. We might be brains in a vat and we might be living in the, in the matrix. None of that really helps me live my life right now. What helps me live my life right now is, is treating the world around me as though it were real and Mm. treating the relationships I have as though they're important, which they are to me and, Mm. and not trying to fit those things into a superstructure that uh, feels alien to that. And I have to sort of shoehorn those things into it. So, so for me, it was, and this maybe sounds simplistic, but it was, it was a practical decision. Like I'm, it's simpler to live my life as though this that I can see and feel and touch is all there is. And if science one day develops a microscope or a telescope that sees further or deeper than what we're able to see right now, and we discover a world that we never knew existed, wonderful. Like I'm totally on board for that world too. But right now that has nothing to do with whether my neighbors are going to be evicted from their apartments, whether my kids grow up successfully and get good jobs and and have families. It has nothing to do with my relationship with my partner and and the delicious dinner that we're going to make as soon as I get off the phone here. So, you know, all of those things are the things of my immediate life. And I made a choice that that those were the things that mattered the most to me. And and these other questions are interesting, um, but ultimately irrelevant um, to a certain degree, at least in, in my experience. And so, yeah, I love having conversations with, like this one with you. Um, and I'm, and I think the thing that is, uh, really also helpful to me about my humanism is that there's, um, sort of a, an innate humility to it in which I, I'm able to say I could be wrong and I don't know everything. Um, and I'm delighted to learn things I never knew before. And, you know, if someone can show me uh, a path to paradise, you know, honestly, I, I've come to think that the idea of living forever is actually a curse. Um, and that I don't think we wouldn't really want that, uh, even if we could have it. Um, and so I, I think that's a misplaced idealism that uh, that's ultimately not good for us, that we can't really truly value something that lasts forever. Um, that that temporality is is sort of essential, like like the horizon of what's possible is limited by by its um, its ability to be lost. And um, there's a beauty in the finality of things, is what you're describing. Absolutely, absolutely. Everything ends, and things that don't end, we don't take seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a wonderful book that I would recommend to you and your audience called This Life. Um, by a, a philosopher named Martin Hagland, H-A-G-G-U-L-N-D, mm-hmm. and um, wrote it. He wrote it. La- came out last year. It's been, you know, just remarkably received by the philosophical community as well as the the wider public. And he makes this argument so clearly that that to um, to really embrace and live your life as a life, it has to be. Um, Something has to be at stake in it. Mm -hmm. And if you know that you're going to live forever, nothing is at stake. Mm. Well, what I find 
interesting in the in these ideas that you're talking about and the worldview that you've shifted to. You're you're looking for a practical worldview that empowers a better life for you here and now and empowers you. It sounds like that's your metric by which what empowers me to move towards a direction that's that's better for my life. Now, I think a trivialized misinterpretation of what you're saying would sound something like you're just wanting to do whatever you want. It's this pursuit of some level of hedonism and things like that. But I think you're even at the top of the show when we learn about you your movement into fighting homelessness, social justice, all of all of these things. You know, I'm sure the political far right would call you some communist something, whatever. But but to be honest, it, it's it built within it when you're saying what helps me live a better life. Within that seems to be the the thing that has that has I guess shaped you growing up. The centrality of the other, the centrality of loving thy neighbor, so to speak. And so, in some level, there is that centrality of a particular ter- interpretation of the gospel, which is love your neighbor as yourself. And so, as you're pursuing a, uh, I guess, a framework to hold all of these things, I d- I'm just drawing out that it's interesting that there's still this centrality of otherness that Christianity will claim to have as well. They'll, they'll say, we, we also want to love the outcast and all. we aspire to be like Jesus as well. So it's, it's, it's funny that it looks like a similar aspiration without the Jesus, without the religion, um, but it's still within there and you're defining that as a better life for you. Uh, how does, how does yeah. that sound? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I think that there can be within humanism um, people who maybe not humanism, maybe atheism. There, there can be a hedon, like a, just a raw hedonism, like, and there's definitely a libertarianism among some atheists. They're like, nobody's going to tell me what to do. Like, I lived my whole life with God telling me what to do, and now nobody's mm-hmm. going to tell me what to do. And and that's you know that's a potential outcome of of um, of people's lives uh, after religion. Um, I think the thing that animates me is the the possibility that we could create a form of life together in that would uh, facilitate a broad based human flourishing, and and I I am happy to work you know arm in arm with my Christian and Muslim and Hindu and Buddhist friends who share that goal with me who are motivated by their faith as I have been, mm-hmm. um, to accomplish those things. Um, I just, it just ceased to be for me a, a plausible, um, like truth structure from which to, to operate. Um, but other people find it very compelling and, um, you know, and Christianity isn't guaranteed to bring you to that, you know, that humanistic outcome either. We see the opposite very often as well. And we see the opposite from humanists. So nothing guarantees anything. Like being a Christian doesn't guarantee that you're going to be a good person. doesn't guarantee you're going to be a bad person. Being an atheist or a humanist doesn't guarantee that you're going to be a good person. So it's these, these variables are all independent of one another. And, um, you're not making a universal claim of this is the worldview that will lead to an outcome. You're just saying this is a worldview that helps me towards life. Yeah. Like it's, it's like what happens when you've been raised in a Christian framework that led you eventually to uh, a social justice, you know, outlook on the world. And then you lose your belief in God. Where do you go from there? Mm -hmm. Um, And what I'm saying is that I'm, 
essentially the fundamentally the same person that I always was. I just don't mm-hmm. derive my, um, my, I guess my actions or my choices from the same, um, philosophical basis as I, as I used to, um, but other people may. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction that you pull out. Uh, and I think it's very implicit in how people view other people if they change belief systems, whether it be political belief systems or whether it be especially religious belief systems. And you're, you're saying you, you, are, you still care about the same things. You are still largely the same person, but without this aspect anymore. Yeah. So I, I suppose... Yeah, no, absolutely. One, one, a few questions people will have, I think, as we, as I try and wrap up. Um, why does it not need, lead to nihilism? Why does the life will end? There's the nihilistic approach. Well, it's going to end, so who cares? And like, where do your morals come from? Like, how does it not lead to a moralist nihilism? I mean, I think it can. Um, I think nihilism's always on the table. Um, I think that I think nihilism's on the table with Christianity as well. I mean, I think Christianity can lead to a kind of fatalism or nihilism in which uh, you basically give up on the world altogether mm-hmm. because you have this otherworldly vision. Um, so, I mean, I, I was at risk of nihilism long before I, I left my faith. Um, and I always see myself as somewhat at, at risk for nihilism, especially now um, with the state of, of uh, politics, what it is. It's, it's very easy uh, to... to um, to lose hope. And I think I've, I don't value hope the way I I once did. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if I may, I guess I'll I'll try to explain it this way. Um, The last sermon I ever gave in my church was about the, the Pauline uh, formula about faith, hope, and love um, in first Corinthians 13. And um, at that, at that point, I really felt my faith was slipping um, and then I won't bore the, bore you and the time doesn't permit for us to go into this in detail, but, um, I've since felt like, um, hope is great when you can get it, but it's not always uh, possible and, and frankly, not necessary. Like the thing that's necessary is love and we don't need faith and hope to love one another. Um, uh. you faith and hope can it coexist with love, um, but I don't think they're necessary. I think you can be faithless and it's in the sense of religious faith, faithlessness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you certainly don't, I mean, thankfully we don't need hope in order to love one another. Mm-hmm. Um, we can just love one another because it's the right thing to do in the moment. And it feels like we're drawn into that experience of, of um, caring for one another and loving one another. And that's to me, the thing that matters the most. Uh-huh. So that's, I think love is the thing that, that staves off nihilism. I, I wow. think you can't really be nihilistic if you have a if you have a deep love for people in the world. Mm. I hear a progressive Christian saying, "Well, God is love, so you're a Christian." <laughs> yeah, then I would. My response to that would be, "Then let's just call it, call it love." Like, right? Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, if God is love, then I'm I'm good with the word love. Actually, I think God the word <sighs> God is very confusing to people because. The word God conjures up all sorts of other images and other motivations. What is God? And, you know, Mm. depend on what you, you know, and and love is a confusing enough word as it is. And to conflate it with God just, I think, makes it even more confusing. 
Yeah, I really like how you've disentangled all these dots that we we have, like we have the basic assumptions I threw at you at the beginning, but we also have these assumptions on what leads to what. And I like how you've pulled it apart and saying this worldview doesn't necessarily lead to this and necessarily neither does this. It's a very complex mix of all. And I like how you've unpacked that. Two questions I ask of, of everybody. How do you see your former pastor Ryan Bell self? How do you, how do you see that guy now? What would you say to him? Uh, oh, man, I try to have a lot of compassion. I mean, I've been a person that's put an incredible amount of pressure on myself. Um, and I was tr- trying so hard to make it all fit, to make it all work together and to be all the things that I and others expected me to be. Um, and I, I see him as someone who was... Um, in many ways, desperate for approval um, and love and acceptance and um, earnest, you know. And I think as best I could possibly be honest, you know, but um, like deeply at ill, ill at ease with um, my place in the social system of Christianity. Mm-hmm. How would how would he see you right now? Who's that? Old Ryan Bell. Oh, see me now? Yeah, Pastor oh, Ryan um, Bell looking at this Ryan Bell or someone like him in the church being like, uh, come on, mate. Yeah. Um, maybe in like one part, like good for you. Um, mm. You got out. Um, uh, another part, maybe like uh like like this new world views a cop out maybe a little bit uh-huh. like you couldn't hack it or you gave <laughs> right. up you, uh-huh. know, you weren't you, grounded in the word yeah and i think well maybe not grounded in the word but like you just you you gave up on all of us like i feel like that was how a lot of people felt um i gave up on the project of trying to change the church from within hmm. into this more uh, loving, um, compassionate place. Yeah, I could, I could, yeah, keep keep digging and exploring this. These conversations like this are, are awesome. Thanks so much for for taking so much time. Is there anything that you want to add and get in there that you might have missed? Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would say, I guess, to anybody listening is, um, I mean, this is sounds going to sound corny, probably, but. The, the, the most important thing in my view is to be true to yourself and to try to find a place where you can be at ease with your worldview and your inner convictions and, um, and uh, you know, and, and to ask the questions that you need to ask. Like, don't let anybody tell you not to go down a path of mm-hmm. inquiry. Um, I think that was what really held me back for so long. Like there were things that were off limits, the questions I couldn't really explore in part because of my occupation. Mm -hmm. Um, It was required for me to have certain beliefs. Um, But also socially, there was a pressure to fit in. And um, there is, I would say, life after God, uh, to coin an expression. Oh, Um, nice. You've come back to that one. That's a a well good segue. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) 
Yeah. But it's not like, but it, there's also no shame in, in making your Christianity work better for you or fit better for you mm-hmm. or your, you know, whatever else you believe. Um, and, and I think that, you know, love and compassion is the thing and whatever leads you to that outcome, um, to be more accepting and loving of other people, um, to eliminate hate and, and, um, discrimination, mm-hmm. um, Use whatever levers you can reach. On that that very, in a way, very non-controversial note, I don't know if anyone will disagree with trying to make the world a better place. So thanks so much for, for taking the time to, to talk to me and be so open and honest. If you're listening to that and uh, you disagree or you agree, uh, I don't really, don't really care. Not the point of the show. Hopefully, you've gotten some ideas to sit with and digest. And if you enjoy our podcast, please rate and review it on iTunes. And other than that, oh yeah, three things. Um, if th- the, th- the three things I said at the top of the show, uh, you're already doing it. So you've listened to the episode. That's fantastic. People are still watching in the live. Uh, to ask a question. When I, when I post a podcast and you've listened to the episode, uh, post a question you wish I'd have asked my guest. I'll probably miss something. I'll miss stuff all the time. Be part of the practice. And three, respond. Send us a DM. What has it made you think of? What would you like to see explored? Take the passive into the practice. So thanks for tuning into another episode and I will catch you in the next one.